Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this special bonus panel episode on AI for social good, we interviewed Dr. Anamika Barman Adhikari, Dr. Fei Fang, and Dr. Amulya Yadav. Anamika Barman Adhikari is an associate professor of social work at the University of Denver. She received her PhD in social work from the University of Southern California. Fei Feng is an assistant professor at the Institute for Software Research in the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University. Before joining CMU, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Research on Computation and Society at Harvard University. Amulya Yadav is an assistant professor in the College of Information Sciences and Technology at Penn State University. He is also an affiliate faculty appointment at the Center for Artificial Intelligence in Society at USC. In this interview, we cover AI for Social Good 101. And this includes questions of what is AI for social good? What are specific ways we can use AI for social good? And how do we make sure that our AI is doing intentional social good instead of unintentional social harm? And as Jess mentioned, this is a very special panel episode with some of our favorite scholars of AI for social good. Uh, and it kicks off our week of celebrating AI for social good and exploring it further. That will continue this coming Wednesday, if you're listening to this the week that this goes live, with an interview with uh, the advisor, actually, of some of these panelists, Dr. Eric Rice. And now it is our pleasure to share this panel on AI for social good with all of you. So we're on the line today with Anamika, Faye, and Amulia. It's great to have you all here. As we begin, we were wondering if uh, so folks can recognize your voice and know a little bit uh, who you are. If you could say, again, your full name, you could say your title, and also a one to two sentence summary of your research. Hey, everyone. My name is Amulia Yadav. Uh, thank you guys for having me here. Uh, I am an assistant professor at the College of Information Sciences and Technology at Penn State University. And my research area is primarily uh, trying to tackle real, uh, you know, problems of of uh, that that benefit uh, socially disadvantaged populations using uh, AI techniques and you know and strategies. Uh, a lot of my research is focused around homeless youth, and how can we tackle problems faced different kinds of problems faced by homeless youth. Uh, using AI and some of that work has been in collaboration with Anamika and Faye. No, yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, protectory, yeah, that's a high level idea of my research. Yeah. Hi everyone, I'm Faye Fang. Uh, I'm an assistant professor uh, at the School of Computer Science in uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And uh, I've been working on artificial intelligence and multi-agent systems, focusing on um, integrating machine learning and game theory for various societal challenges uh, like wildlife conservation, uh, security, of food security and other uh, type of challenges. Uh, my name is Anamika Barman Adhikari. I am an associate professor, a newly minted associate professor at the School of Social Work here at the University of Denver. And uh, my research is focused on understanding uh, risk and protective factors among young people 
experiencing homelessness and I'm especially interested in understanding uh, their social relationships, both in person as well as uh, their digital networks and how we can leverage those networks to um, achieve more positive outcomes among this otherwise vulnerable group. And recently I've been using AI, um, uh, especially with uh, my computer science collaborators um, um, and Amulya and Faye being a huge part of that uh, in order to tackle or um, achieve more sustainable and efficient solutions to these issues. And before we dive into the interview, I'm wondering if uh, one of you would be willing to say how you all know each other as uh, researchers, because I know you all have a special connection as well. Social networks. <laughs> yeah, Amulia and I uh, got our PhD from the uh, same lab under the same advisor, Professor Melin Tambe, who is now at Harvard. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I get connected with Amulia. And then later on, Amulia introduces introduced Anamika to me and it's really great for me to have the chance to, to work with both of them. And, and there's, a, there's a deeper connection. Uh, so yeah, so, so the, the connection between me and Faye was made clear by Faye. Uh, you know, a lot of my work has, uh, in a lot of the work that I've done, you know, I've, I've been closely mentored and collab I've collaborated with Dr. Eric Rice, uh, who is an associate professor and he's a I think he's now the sole director of, of the Center of AI and Society at USC. And uh, he's, he was in my doctoral committee. And Anamika was, used to be a student of Eric. So, so that's also you know, a connection. And uh, that's also a, a little bit of a, um, a plug as well, because uh, we actually recently interviewed Eric Rice. And so we're having kind of a week of AI for social good um, of this week. So we're going to start off this week with you all. Um, and then Eric will. Uh, will come in later. So uh, we'll, it'll be interesting to see the different answers from kind of advisor and, and student, um, which is also a way to segue just into our first question. So let's start off the panel with the golden question of the week. And it would be great if Anamika, maybe you can start us off and then everyone else feel free to pick up the mic as uh, needed. So the first question we have for you all is, what is AI for social good? Well, you know, I have, uh, as we were discussing earlier, I have pondered on that question quite a bit as I have, you know, embarked uh, on the journey and navigated the journey marrying these two um, very different but convergent, you know, disciplines, right? Um, and I think the most important thing to do here is to define social good. What do we mean? by social good. And the most simplest explanation is that it's something that uh, produces some kind of societal or public benefit, right? But I think as a social worker, uh, keeping in mind issues of power, privilege, and oppression uh, and social justice, I'm also very focused on who defines um, social good. And I think you know, AI also is very broad, right? And I'm not an AI expert, so I'm not going to try to explain AI, <laughs> um, but I think in, in, in trying to make sure that we have a very, you know, um, ethical convergence of both these disciplines and we use AI for the betterment of society, we really need to focus on who defines social good, who is it benefiting, are we really involving the community 
in defining social good? And, you know, how are we measuring those metrics? What are the metrics through which we measure success? Um, so, I mean, I'll let Faye and Amalia step in as well, but for me that it, it, it's really, I, I don't know if my answer is very concrete, but I don't think we have concrete answers. Um, um, it's, it's something that is contextual and will be different based on the, you know, every case situation. So I think mm, the notion of AI for social good itself is kind of like a, a vague term because as Anamika said, social good is not well-defined. And even AI, there's a lot of definitions on AI you can find on textbooks, and on like in talks and in many other places. So uh, combined together, there's still, uh, there's even more combinations of definitions for it. Um, I think now some efforts is trying to define AI for social good by listing several application domains of AI technologies, uh, or just say societal challenges, which have not yet been, uh, yet has, have not yet received significant attention from the AI community. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, so I think uh, in our recent survey paper on AI for social good, we're also kind of following this approach, just trying to list a, a few application domains uh, and then trying to um, survey uh, or discuss uh, the papers on each of these domains. All right, so uh, even though my answer should, should be similar to what Faye said uh, in theory, uh, I'm gonna take a slightly different point of view. Uh, I think, you know, uh, we've had these discussions in the past as to what, how, how do we define AI for social good? Uh, we hosted me and Faye Together, we hosted this AI for Social Good Symposium at Stanford. Uh, it was 2017, spring of 2017, I believe. And we were having, we were having this uh, overarching discussion at the end of it. And we had this slide put up where we were trying to point out what gets included in AI for Social Good Research and what does not get put, uh, what does not get included in AI for Social Good Research. And uh, at that point in time, lots of answers came up. But since then, what I've thought is that, you know, maybe it's not necessary. So, so you know, uh, to give you a little bit of con context, uh, the, the criticism that, uh, you know, me, uh, my advisor at least, because he's told me stories and I'm pretty sure others as well, Faye included, and maybe Anamika as well. The criticism that people sort of uh, say is that if what you're saying is this is AI social good, uh, does that mean that everything else the complement of that universe is does does that not achieve any kind of social benefit, right? And and people give all all kinds of examples that you know advertisements. I mean, take take a very commercial example that you would not associate with social good. If you think about it, you can associate some sort of benefit with advertisements as well because those advertisements allow you to uh, use services like Google, etc., for free, right? Uh, so so I guess the first thing that I would like to say is that when we try to define AI for social good, uh, we should note that, you know, we were, you know, my advisors group was one of the first groups uh, that started talking about AI for social good applications, right? And I guess that is why the application that we were working with, we'd wanted to, we, we tried, we sort of naturally, you know, said that these are AI for social good applications. I guess what we did not make clear is that, other things could also be a part of social good. 
and you know fay and others have been uh, doing a great effort in this space you know they've been organizing lots of workshops uh, in conferences on ai for social good where uh, other people uh, who have you know who work on unconventional applications you know some 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 work on applications who if you ask me i would not necessarily associate with my contrive you know very very narrow idea of idea of ai for social good but i guess again i i am no one to define whether something is ai for social good or not right so i guess the the point that i'm trying to make is it's an evolving term right if you think about if you forget ai for social good and just talk about ai in general today uh, there are lots of disciplines which in 1950s and 1960s nobody would have associated with ai game theory that was not that was not an ai operations research that was not an ai right and over the years many people uh jumped on you know uh, and and said you know assume that you know this work also belongs in the field of ai i envision the same thing happening with ai for social good as well right now the applications that we were working on and our collaborators work work were working on since we were the, one of the first people who were working in this space we naturally uh included our applications into the the ambit of ai for social good uh there was no malice in that uh, in, in in that part right uh but at the same time you know we want to keep it as open as possible uh it's going to and and you know the definition of ai for social good is out of our control you know we could we could write out or you know or through the through this panel we could uh you know produce a well formed statement of this is ai for social good research and 10 years down the line that's not going to be relevant at all right because new people are going to going to come up with new applications and they are going to argue that our our research is is also benefiting society so we need to take a a broader viewpoint right uh i guess yeah so so that is this is this is sort of like a an alternate you know framing of the of the same same, same question uh, i i completely agree with what anamika and faith said uh, and and i'm wondering okay. if um because we've talked about or at least we've talked around some of the the applications um and i'm wondering if we can put um more uh, specifics to it because i know you all have done specific research on specific applications of ai for social good um and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what those applications have been i know uh, we've mentioned homelessness a little bit and i can imagine some of our listeners are wondering well what how how does ai how can ai be used to address this issue of of homelessness uh, so maybe starting from that but any other applications that you'd like to raise up as well well i can i can start with homelessness uh since that's what i've worked on mostly uh i guess you know from an ai perspective what we realized is when we talked to eric Uh, and uh, and anamika and robin and you know uh, 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 several others uh, what we found is that you know at the uh, a lot of the problems a lot of the issues that uh, people in uh, you know social work departments such as you know eric and anamika uh, they are focusing on they are effectively situations in which there is some entity be it a non profit organization be it the government be it uh you know uh, a university a research a, a research department anything right they are trying to impart some or administer some sort of a program or implement some sort of a policy amongst a certain set of a certain population right that population could be anything in our case that population invariably turned out to be a population of homeless youth right and you you know uh, 
often there's the there's the situation there, there's the case that you want to implement some some sort of a program and to implement that program you don't have enough resources right so more often than not what we found is that the problems in social work you know the problems that uh, that are talked about in social work departments at least the ones that we uh, you know i don't want to claim that we know about every problem uh, that that gets talked about in social work department, departments far from it right but at least the problems that we were exposed to uh, we found that they are effectively in our terminology they are what we would call them uh, call as uh, resource allocation problems constrained resource allocation problems we have a limited set of resources we want to use those resources in the most efficient possible manner to achieve some desired outcome uh, what that translated to in the homeless youth case is that uh, you know uh, eric for a long time he had been working with homeless youth and was working on trying to raise awareness about hiv prevention amongst homeless youth right and and more generally sti awareness right uh and what happens is that you know uh researchers such as eric they uh they conduct these intervention programs where they train what you know people uh, homeless youth as peer leaders uh, and and you know these peer leaders are given information about how does it, you know hiv spread how do i sti spread spread etc uh and how do you prevent yourself from getting this and then they are told to make sure as much as possible to make sure that their peers adopt the same behaviors or or their peers also get similar information right uh now since these uh, you know these interventions these intervention programs are volunteer driven they are usually run by you know uh, eric and his team and, and and others like him uh there's often a situation that the population that you want to manage is very huge you know we have hundreds of homeless youth and we have three or four volunteers who are going to conduct interventions so you have very few resources with which to conduct these interventions and you want to maximize the spread of awareness about hiv in these populations right and you not only do you want to maximize the spread of awareness you also want to maximize the adoption of positive behavior change right that they uh practice protected sex they they uh get tested for stis regularly that sort of thing and uh, so i guess from an ai perspective that's what we focused on we we cast these problems as resource allocation problems and then we used our uh, ai models uh, you know that has that are you know relatively uh, well known in, in ai literature such as pomdps uh, and others uh, to solve these problems i'm i'm wondering because you're an interdisciplinary team as well and sometimes working on the same uh, issues at the very least um if Faye or, or Namaka, if you have a uh, similar or, or different understanding of uh, kind of that same question of the, the practical applications? Well, um, I think um, Amulya, um, you know, encapsulated this idea of resource allocation and resource constraints that exist within social work agencies really well. But I think um, related to that, we also have an efficiency issue in social work and especially uh, behavior change interventions, right? We want to make sure our interventions work, but we also want to make sure that they work efficiently. And sometimes there are some, you know, issues that prevent 
you know, these interventions from working efficiently. So one of the um, issues that I have been focused on in using AI in my own work is to address this um, issue of deviance training. So deviance training is this idea that when groups of high-risk youth are uh, put together in groups, um, in order to change some kind of a deviant behavior, the high-risk behavior actually goes up. And this has been a tricky, intractable social problem that we have been in social work and psychology talking about forever. And nobody's had a solution to this. So instead of doing good, we were actually doing harm um, through these interventions. Um, so we were not doing our work, not only were we not doing our work efficiently, we were actually doing it badly. Um, so I worked with um, uh, researchers from USC, uh, especially Ida, um, who is a PhD student at USC, and we wanted to use AI in order to understand how do we structure these groups, these groups for intervention, especially for substance use interventions, these you know, groups of young people come together and then, you know, they are placed in groups so that they can talk about their substance use and any other associated issues. So how can we structure these groups? We didn't want to change the curriculum of the intervention. The curriculum was fine, but we wanted to change the structure of the group so that we, you know, were reducing the chances of deviancy and increasing the chances of positive outcomes. And so you, we used measures like um, their social network relationships, um, as well as um, what kind of behaviors and demographic uh, variables in order to design this algorithm that could structure them into groups in a way that, again, as I said earlier, reduces their deviance behaviors. So what we found through that algorithm, when we compared it to intervention as usual, versus using this algorithm to structure those groups, the deviancy went down by 60%. And, you know, we, I'm not saying that AI is the technology is a solution on its own. You need that human intervention in order to say, hey, these are the variables that we need to consider in operating or in designing this algorithm. But without that AI algorithm, we will not be able to design you know, a solution in order to structure groups that can be scalable. Like any agency can now use this algorithm and use these variables in order to structure groups where deviancy training won't really be an issue. So what AI does is it increases efficiency, but it also increases scalability. And it decreases the time and effort needed from humans. And, and again, I'm not saying that humans are not needed, it, it, it is definitely technology cannot function on its own, but definitely it makes your job faster, easier, and more scalable. Yeah, uh, and let me also try to introduce some other application domains that I've worked on. Uh, so some of my work, uh, actually many of my work is centered around, uh, is motivated by the challenges in wildlife conservation. Uh, like there's, it's a huge crisis that a lot of very special, uh, very critical uh, wildlife species are on the edge of uh, distinction. And uh, wildlife conservation agencies send rangers to different places, uh, to the protected areas and trying to uh, detect and deter the poachers. Uh, they conf confiscate the snares they uh, placed by the poachers. They catch the poachers on site when uh, 
possible and uh, or they just to record what's going on and then try to call other agencies that has more uh, enforcement power to catch the poachers. Um, and how can AI help? Well, let's see like what they are, what they have been doing without AI. So usually the site managers uh, needs to decide the patrol routes for the rangers and uh, the area in need of protection is huge. Well, the number of ranchers is actually quite small. So it's just impossible for them to cover the whole region. Uh, and then the question is, okay, where should we send them to? And then uh, before, usually it's, just, uh, usually it's just the site managers based on their own experience, decide the patrol routes for the, uh, for the rangers. And this uh, would need um, like someone who, who is really experienced, who knows the area where, uh, and also it requires a lot of effort if the site manager is managing multiple parks at the same time. They basically, they need to generate patrol routes for all of them every day. And that will be a huge cognitive burden and also very time consuming. So, and in fact, uh, uh, the, the design of the patrol routes would often also fall under uh, the biases that the domain experts, the site managers have. So uh, what we're trying to do is to leverage uh, machine learning techniques try to predict which areas are more uh, risky, which areas have more uh, poaching threat, so that we can consider like sending the rangers to those places more often. And in addition to that, considering that the poachers are actually responding to the rangers' patrol strategy, uh, we when we design the patrol strategy, we need to take into account their response. Like if they adapted to our patrol strategy, uh, should we still, like how should we set the ranges uh, to the right place? So we use game theory uh, to formulate this as a game between the ranchers and the poachers and trying to compute the optimal strategy for the ranchers in this interaction. So uh, with this type of uh, tools, um, the benefit is that it can significantly reduce the cognitive burden uh, on the site managers. And even for someone who's kind of new to the area, even if they don't really know much about the area, they can still use this automated tool to generate patrol routes. Uh, and in addition, uh, it incorporates uh, all the historical data that have been collected by the rangers in the past and all the geospatial features like the, the slope, the roads, the rivers uh, and any other factor that might impact the poacher's behavior. They incorporate all these factors in trying to build a model so that uh, it, it may still have bias, which is caused by the data that is provided to the machine learning algorithm, but it would have less human bias in, the, uh, in this case. Uh, well, yeah, and we, collaborated with multiple uh, wildlife conservation agencies and tested these algorithms in multiple conservation sites. And in many of, in most of these places, they do see a significant increase in the uh, catch per unit effort, uh, say like the number of snares they found per kilometer of walking or the number of snares they find uh, per month of patrol. So they do see a huge increase there. So that's also an, in, uh, an indication on uh, like the effectiveness of the uh, AI-based tools. Um, and more recently, we started working on the problem of uh, food security because uh, food is, 
like we see the food insecurity and food waste problem exist at the same time. And there's uh, this kind of food rescue platform that that's, uh, tries to connect restaurants and groceries who have leftover food with the communities, local communities in need of food. And uh, they rely on volunteers to deliver the food. And uh, what they used to do is that they have the human dispatchers uh, who are trying to match the donors and the recipients of the food. And also they have this fixed notification scheme, which is uh, designed in a, uh, like based on their own experience, like they send notifications to all the volunteers within say five miles from the pickup location and they'll wait for say 15 minutes. And then if no one, uh, if no volunteer really says, oh, I'm, I can do the delivery, then they will send notification to everyone who's registered on their platform. So uh, this can be very inefficient because you may just send out notifications to too many people. So what we are, try so what we are doing is that we're trying to use AI, uh, first use machine learning algorithms to predict uh, which rescues are more likely to be uh, cl uh, claimed by the volunteers and which rescues might need a little bit more attention from the human dispatcher because the human dispatcher can also take other actions to help uh, kind of uh, contact the specific volunteers and then to ask them if specifically if they're willing to uh, help with this particular rescue. Uh, and in addition, we build upon this machine learning model, we're trying to also build this notification schemes um, designed by AI uh, with the op optimization goal of minimizing the uh, notifications sent to the volunteers while ensuring a uh, success rate, like the completion rate of the rescues. So uh, these are the things that we have been doing and we're collaborating with the local food rescue platform here in Pittsburgh, 412 Food Rescue, and they have already tested uh, our proposed notification scheme and we're continuing exploring the newer version of it right now. So these are some other application, uh, applications that we have uh, worked on using AI. Great. So now all of you have given some really great concrete examples of how we can use AI for social good and then also some examples of how we can potentially measure to see if these um, AI tools are successful or if they are effective. And so a question I have for all of you is a little bit of a a playoff of critiques that people have given to the AI for social good community. And that is asking, well, how do we even define what is measured as success? And so I'm wondering, especially when we talk about like resource allocation for social good, there's a lot of potential bias and unfairness that can go into decisions that are being made for that, even before AI is introduced into the equation. So how do all of you or have you potentially in your past projects um, accounted for this problem and this challenge of making sure that whatever resources you're allocating are fair or as fair as they can be. And I guess the broader question here is really, um, how do we make sure that the AI is doing intentional social good instead of unintentional social harm? That's a very good question. In fact, uh, like last year, I organized, I co-organized uh, a, a track in the joint workshop for on AI for social good at Europe's conference, which is a major AI conference. And the other two tracks are uh, from malicious use to responsible AI and public policy. So as you can see, the second track is particularly focusing on the potential negative effects. Um, 
And I think for, for us, this is definitely a question that we need to uh, think about. And so far, what we have been trying to do is that, okay, if there's some existing operations in place already, and then we would jump in and try to help, uh, help the decision makers kind of, we are not trying to replace the, the human decision makers. We're try, trying to provide tools that can help them. Uh, and they, uh, they may still try to balance out different factors when they choose the, 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 the policies, the patrol strategies and so on and so forth. So uh, I think by using, by uh, kind of leveraging both the machine intelligence and the human intelligence, we can partially uh, mitigate this issue? Yeah, I think one of the problems with AI, right, I mean, and we have had discussions about this, is that it can be such a black box. Um, it can be very opaque, these algorithms, and, um, you know, even when the data holds bias, so clearly the algorithm is kind of a, you know, um, what is, how do I, how do I, Put it. It's a math mathematical expression of that underlying bias, right? Um, so how do we account for that bias? So we have to be really intentional. I mean, one of the projects that Faye and I have worked on is this uh, Facebook. Uh, we uh, collected uh, Facebook data from about 150 young people um, experiencing homelessness. Uh, so all the data from their Facebook feed, um, and, uh, and Amulya is also part of that project. Uh, and we um, developed this algorithm to predict substance use. Um, and one of the things that we have been uh, talking about in terms of the future of the project is how do we get this algorithm into agencies, and how will the agencies use this algorithm and use the data that the young people give them um, in order to provide them services or triage them for services. Uh, will this bias their decisions in any way? And I don't think we have, we, I don't think we arrived at like the ultimate solution, right? This is like a foolproof solution, but one, one of our, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Faye and Amalia, I think one of our solutions was to build um, this, uh, software for them that would take the data but not actually provide any of the data to the agency beyond um, this uh, parameter that this youth might be at risk for substance use in the future. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think for AI to function well, um, it needs to be inclusive and accessible. And it also needs to adhere to ethical principles, but this is again, a very deep conversation that um, every researcher working on AI for social good needs to have as they are thinking about their own projects. And uh, again, as I think Amulya mentioned it earlier, like this is an evolving conversation. Um, and we, we really need to be mindful and intentional about having those conversations. Right. So my my uh, my take on this question is uh, that you know so fairness uh, and unfairness uh, of of AI systems has become a huge thing now. Right. It's it's become its own own subfield inside inside AI. Right. Uh, I 
so so clearly uh, there there are many methods that are you know coming out as we speak uh, you know uh, in, in every conference there are separate tracks uh, dedicated to uh, you know fairness accountability and transparency uh, in ai right uh, so so clearly a lot of work is is going on a lot of lot more work needs to be done before we can uh, build systems which we can confidently say are not going to be biased right but i don't think you know we will reach a point where we will be able to have systems where we you know we are done right? it, it it's it's always going to be a situation where a new problem comes up uh, and and you know we, we we then need to come up with the research to 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 address that that problem uh, you know my my personal experience i mean the second part of the question was uh, how do we ensure that our ai research it does you know and it does you know it it does not end up doing unintentional harm right i guess my experience uh, in this in with regards to this question has been that you know often it is the case that research or ai researchers tend to work by themselves they read newspaper articles and then they come up with abstract problem statements that they think reflects what's actually happening in in reality uh and they you know often very often the, the problem statement is chosen such that you can have elegant math uh for that for that for that problem statement right uh and i and i guess you know i've been i've i've been a victim or i've been a you know of, of the of this kind of thinking as well because you know what we faced you know going back to the homeless uh uh you know trying to raise awareness about hiv amongst homeless youth that project we first built a system uh that we thought would work well right and that system the way it worked was somebody would collect social network data for us about homeless youth that data we would get we would feed that into our algorithm and our algorithm would spit out names that you know pick uh people number 104 105 and 107 uh maybe they're tom harry and sam uh and and pick them and call them for your intervention what we found and what we had not anticipated is that 80% of the times you will not be able to contact tom harry and sam and even if you are able to contact tom harry and sam they'll say no i don't want to be part of your intervention the only reason i signed up is because you were handing out 20 dollar gift cards i wanted that money i don't want anything to do with your study uh, and you know i i'll be the first one to admit there is no way i could have thought of that happening uh just sitting you know on my computer uh, trying to code up an algorithm or what they were trying to de- develop an algorithm how do you solve this problem uh, how do you ensure so so this was an example of an unintended uh, or the algorithm uh, running its course in, in in a completely unintentional manner right so how do you how do you make sure that this does not happen i guess there are two answers the first is it's very important for you to talk uh to as many domain experts as possible right people who are actually working in the field uh their insights and their expertise is invaluable in coming up with a problem statement that is reflective of real world constraints and real world challenges even though that re- that that problem statement might not lend itself very easily to very elegant mathematics or very un- elegant problem statements right but that's what's actually the that is what the problem is that needs to be solved if you want to be able to build a system that's going to work in reality right so so yeah so so we need to 
make sure that we engage with domain experts as soon as possible in the modeling process so that all our modeling choices and and our algorithmic decision making uh, is informed by their insights and the second is you know it does not suffice uh, for us to just so the way it happens in, in you know in our, in computer science research is that it it from 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 a computer scientist perspective it is okay uh, for us to develop an algorithm that is informed by a real world problem and then conduct simulation experiments in a in a computer compare that to some realistic real world baseline and show that our algorithm outperforms this baseline that we and therefore are you know we've done some social good right uh, i guess for ai for social good research we need a a different uh, you know we we need to have different expectations uh, because oftentimes you know just as the example that i was giving oftentimes what happens is when you actually go and deploy your work in 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 the real world when you actually try to deploy your work you find out that many assumptions that you had made actually don't make sense which then make the algorithm or or your system unusable so it's very important to iron out these kinks and the only way you can do that is by uh yeah so by by, by trying to deploy your system in the field uh yeah uh, you know and and not just rely on simulation results and uh, uh proofs of convergence or or optimality statements etc right so so these are some i mean so these are some of the things that i would uh urge everybody to use to make sure that their algorithm doesn't you know does not act in an in an undesirable or in a uh, an inconceivable manner. A lot of the uh, a lot of the people who tune in uh, to this show are really interested in this in this question of okay, we're either a user or a designer or a researcher or an industry professional, and we have technology out there, uh, and we want to do something good with it. Right? We got into this field because we want to do something good for the world. And for you folks who are doing good things in the world. <laughs> With AI, I'm wondering what advice uh, you might have for folks out there, and maybe a, a way to frame this is: if there was one thing that you've learned for yourself, uh, either if it's a mistake that you've made that you've learned from, or just something that you've learned through this process of you doing this research and this design work and this implementation work, uh, what would it be that you'd like to share with our audience? So I guess it's a tough question to answer. Uh, um i guess the advice or, or or the thing that i would ask people to look out for is that people who who have a computer science background me included we tend we have a tendency to cook up problems that don't exist because because it's a cool problem and we think i mean we 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 have good intentions we don't intentionally try to create a problem that does not exist but in our naivety because we don't you know we we don't have insights we don't have enough context about every domain on planet earth right very often if you tend if you are going to work in a silo many times you're going to overlook certain things that's going to you know uh, end up in you creating unrealistic problem statements that have nothing to do with any anything that's actually affecting uh, the, prob- the 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 population that you want to uh, whose whose life whose life you want to improve right so so really i mean uh, the the first step that i would ask you know that that is that i have uh found useful is to make sure that the problem that you're working on is actually a problem 
right uh, and and is not a problem that uh, and is not it's, it's not a problem that could become a real problem 10 years down the line uh and for that to happen i mean at least for me maybe you know uh, it is very important to continually engage uh with people who know what the problems are uh you know people who work in the field and that's why i said it's a hard problem it's a hard question to answer because for a for a for a an enthusiastic person who does you know let's you know if let's say i went to you know i went for my phd in a different department in a different place if if my advisor was not my advisor i don't think it would have been possible for me to do the work that i have been able to do right it was my advisor's connections he was already he already had those connections which i was able to leverage uh because of which i was able to solve uh you know i i was able to work on real world problems uh if my if i had an advisor instead who was working on theoretical research even though i would you know even though i i i might have been very enthusiastic about solving problems that truly impact humanity there's very little that i i mean it's difficult you know it's it's difficult for for uh, at least for young professionals or young graduate students to make the necessary connections uh so so I, I either you work you 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 seek out somebody who has those connections so if you really want to work on problems then i would say seek out my advisor seek out say seek out anamika and uh, see if they have problems that they you know uh, they that they, that they need your expertise in and that would be a good way uh yeah that that would be my advice yeah and to me i think one lesson learned is that uh like really be pre- be prepared for the language barrier and also really spend time uh, with the stakeholders understand the problem from the practical perspective it's not going to be helpful if you just sit in the lab and then come up with a model uh and publish it i mean it, it's probably easy to get a it, it's probably not that hard to get a paper out if you do this do you do it this way but uh if you your goal is to get something that is going to be useful in the practice it's very hard uh if you follow that path um for us it may it takes really a long time to talk to the stakeholders to understand their their pain point uh what is the most important thing to them uh and where techniques can help because they cannot tell you like oh i need this technique right because that's pretty much a a long process that you and your collaborator need to work together to find out uh this is something that they need and something that i can provide um so uh i think that and even if you 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 come up with a model you come up with a solution it it is still quite likely that the first version would not work well in practice possibly because you you ignored some fa- some factors in your model and then you need to have this iterative process to continue uh, get the feedback from the real test or from the domain experts and then continue improving your model and then with multiple rounds of iteration okay finally you get a version that can really these two uh good results uh that can really help them in their daily operation well i'm just i'm going to piggyback on what both faye and amolia said um first of all be authentic just because you know you think technology can serve some social you know benefit uh doesn't mean 
um, you should do it. <laughs> so immerse yourself in that um, you know, community or immerse yourself in that particular topic um, and get to know more before you even um, you know, jump uh, into that particular um, um, endeavor or initiative. Um, second, um, I think it's um, really, really important that you develop these uh, interdisciplinary long-term relationships. I think uh, in working with technology experts, uh, what I have, one of my experiences has been is that technology moves fast. Right, and computer scientists have this, you know, um, desire to work on solutions that move that fast. But with social, with deep-seated social issues, if we do it that fast, it won't work. I can guarantee you that. Um, and as Faye said earlier, you have to keep on iterating. And really, you know, there is no perfect solution and we have to kind of, get used to that idea and keep on evolving and really shy away from the savior complex. <laughs> like really let the communities, you know, guide you as to what the solution can be. Um, so yeah, I think those will be my suggestions or recommendations to people who wanna do any kind of work at the intersection of technology and social good. For folks uh, that want to know more about the work of these incredible researchers, we'll make sure to link to their research, to their Twitters, uh, to their web pages in our show notes. Uh, but for now, we just want to thank Anamika, Faye, and Amulia for joining us today. Thank you all so much, not just for being on the show, but also for the work that you're doing for AI for social good out in the world. We want to thank Anamika, Faye, and Amulia again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation and panel. And my immediate reaction to this interview was actually based off of Anamika's answer to our advice question for people who are looking to get into this space. And I love that Anamika focused on authenticity. And if you've heard the first episode that Dylan and I ever created of this podcast, our welcome episode, you probably know how I feel about authenticity in this space. And I completely agree with everything Anamika said. I think especially in academia, it is so important for us as researchers to be authentic with our work and to work on things that we are qualified to work on, to not lie about our qualifications and to not try to force our way into a field that we might not know well enough yet. And I think it's important, of course, to push our boundaries and to challenge ourselves and to get into fields and disciplines and domains that interest us, but especially when it comes to a topic like AI for social good. So, for example, if I was interested in AI for social good and I wanted to help out uh, maybe at-risk youth who are um, struggling with substance abuse problems, like the project that was mentioned earlier in this panel, it would be really good for me to maybe take a few months, if not a few years, to really immerse myself in that issue as it exists already in the field of social work and to understand what's happening in my local communities and to meet people in person and to understand the problems that are actually existing instead of just assuming that I can solve the problem with a simple or a complex AI algorithm. So I completely agree, and I think it's very important for all of us 
us, especially in the field of AI for social good, to be authentic in our work and to immerse ourselves as much as possible. Yeah, just I love panels. I just really like panels. Uh, I get to learn so much from like multiple different perspectives. Um, and I get to learn more about my own uh, biases, I think, is the thing that I, that I learn the most because it's one of those things where I'm, I'm not a computer scientist. And I know there will be a, a lot of shock and awe about that. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm not a computer scientist, right? I'm a social scientist. And uh, part of my discernment in my current research and my current work is figuring out what it means to be a social scientist doing uh, things or, or thinking, I guess, about research topics that have classically been in more of a STEM uh, curriculum or a STEM landscape. Uh, and so like when Anamika talks and not just because she's my professor, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what you're referencing. I might even know like the research that you've read um, because I've done some work in social work, you know? Uh, and then when Amulia and Faye uh, start referencing things, it's more of an alien landscape to me. <laughs> and that's not, it's not off-putting. It's just, I don't have, uh, I don't have the language yet, right? I'm still learning the language and it's, it's not my discipline. And I have a, you know, a complicated relationship with the concept of disciplines and whether they're helpful or harmful or, or what have you. But um, I think that what I'm taking away most from this conversation in this panel is this interdisciplinary team that they formed um, and how some of the blind spots that you know, Amulia and, and Faye and Anamika mentioned of the, the blind spots of their own fields um, can be seen and can be filled out and be made more whole um, by the strengths of, of the other ones. So uh, Anamika might do research on uh, homeless youth and come up with these awesome research questions and then collect the data, but maybe doesn't have um, the skill set in that discipline to then analyze that data to uh, the degree that she might want. And so by partnering with Faye and Amulia, who have these other expertises, um, that uh, that research project can become more interdisciplinary and thereby become more whole and be able to have even greater nuance and maybe even greater impact to make folks' lives better and vice versa. I'm sure that there are questions and research opportunities that Faye and Amulia might have as uh, computer scientists that then Anamika's insight and input from her discipline and from her lived experience uh, might be able to fill in and nuance. Uh, and make more effective. Totally. And I mean, coincidentally, Dylan, we're an interdisciplinary team too, <laughs> right? What? So, yeah, I hate to break it to you. Uh, Us? <laughs> Just, are you not a religious studies PhD? I, you know, I, I guess I'm not. I, I'm an information science PhD student, as it turns out. But the same it's thing applies so to many us months too. To learn I, what you do. <laughs> But the same thing applies to us too, right? I mean, we come into conversations like this with people who have interdisciplinary backgrounds and you probably resonate quite a bit with what Anamika is saying and maybe some of the scholars that she's referencing. And I'll resonate a little bit more with Amulia and Faye. And it's probably the same for our listeners too, depending on whatever backgrounds they are coming from. And so one of our goals and hopes with all of this is for us to try to help build this dialogue and get us comfortable talking with people who have different backgrounds and different research interests and areas of expertise than we do, because once we do that, we can um, take the 
piece of advice that Amulia mentioned in this panel, and we can have more of these interdisciplinary conversations, and we can feel comfortable to seek out the domain experts for the problems that we are looking to solve. And that is the first step towards a more equitable and fair and socially good future. So I don't just come from a religious studies background, but also a theology background as a minister. And there's this piece of uh, theology, especially coming out of Claremont, that's called process theology. And it's this idea that the world is, is constantly uh, becoming an in process. And uh, that's another thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is that this even field of AI for social good is still so much in process. Um, and one of the things I think this conversation invites us to do is to not necessarily be critical or, or skeptical, but maybe just humble about the fact that all of our fields are still in that process of uh, becoming, and that by being able to converse with one another and have these interdisciplinary spaces and, and research projects, um, that that becoming can become even more uh, you know, beautiful and coherent and uh, represent the world more uh, as it is and as we want it to be. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. radical.